Well, we've been here in Texas, Laura, uh, my wife, and our three kids. They didn't exist yet, but when we moved here back in 2011, I had this small experience that happened right before I came. That I, it was, it was, I thought I was going to die. Uh, not, I mean, well, I am kidding. That's, hyper, that's hyperbole. But um, here it is. Here's the thing. By and large, I like to stay kind of active and healthy. And, you know, I know, shocking right, when you look at me, it's okay. You can snicker, no big deal. Uh, but yes, surprisingly, I do lift a little, bro. And um, the point is, is that I want you to see that before the CrossFit phase, does anybody ever remember the Sean T. Insanity craze? Okay. What? I had someone recommend to me that I should do this as a high-intensity interval training deal. And so I thought, well, sure, I'll go ahead and do it. They said, yeah, it's awesome. It's going to be great. It's body weight stuff, and it'll get your heart rate up. It's good. So what did I do? I got the videos, I put on my workout clothes, I threw the videos in, and oh, oh my. Oh. I remember very distinctly being about three minutes into the first video after going all out like Sean T told me I was supposed to, and I remember three things distinctively. One, I was scared because there was no oxygen tanks in the house. I needed so badly, I was sucking wind. Two, if I did one more burpee, I everything in my stomach. And I, it, I, serious, I wanted to vomit. Thirdly, I wanted to kill my friend. I wanted to kill my friend that recommended this thing and did not tell me what was going on. Y'all, three minutes, I hit pause, 32 more minutes. Still, oh, goodness. Share that story with you, not only so that I can feel younger in this week that I'm turning a year older, but also to highlight a very profound reality for you. I wished that my friend would have simply told me how dang hard, how insane insanity was going to be on my first day. You know, all we had to do was say something like this, you know what, you're going to want to throw up. Uh, your legs will burn and you're going to do like one push-up and then you're going to be done. And you know what? He would have been right. But no, I think I would have loved to have had the hard news right out of the gate and, and, and to know what was coming up. And you know, working out or exercising like that is, is one thing. But really, when Peter begins to open his words to us tonight, there really is a similarity there that he wants to go ahead and tell you, news. He wants to tell you true things. He actually is not afraid to tell you hard things, things that might be hard to hear, but are necessary to hear. Why do I share this with you? Tonight, Peter really is going to say stuff that is going to help us, and that's why he's doing it. You see, Peter is not giving us hard things because he likes to see us be in pain, but instead he's going to speak tonight particularly about the phenomenon of suffering in the life of those who follow Jesus. And he's going to tell us some pretty frank and hard truths about it, but in so doing, he's going to point us to the one who has suffered before us so that we really can have hope when we go through trials. So tonight, we're going to look at three things. Unlike other nights, I'm not going to tell you the three of them up front. Instead, I just want to begin by showing you to start with the inevitability of suffering. The inevitability of suffering. Maybe you caught it right there at the very beginning of our text. Look with me. Verse 18, it says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. What is Peter trying to get at here? He is trying to say that for anyone who follows Jesus, you can expect some season in your life to suffer for following Jesus. Now, I need to be careful because if, you'll, if you notice, that word servants or slaves showed up right at the very beginning. So what is he doing when he uses this motif of, suffer, I mean of servants? Well, here's what he's getting at. Peter is using the language of household servants in the Greco-Roman world. And the point is, is he's using them as a paradigm or as a model to demonstrate those who were of the lowest social class, who had the lowest authority in the world, and who were of the lowest social rank. And Peter is saying it's to folks like that that he's speaking to, but he's also speaking through. Because they serve, y'all, as a model or as a paradigm for all Christians at every place and at everywhere. Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that Christians themselves are meant to understand that part of what it means to live beautiful lives is to, now appropriately even in our work, in our work world, to be able to submit ourselves to the authority around us. But here's what's important that you have to see. He is saying there are going to be times in the life of a believer, just like there would have been in the life of a household servant then, that you may be treated unjustly, that you may be treated unfairly, not only in your work, but in life in general, and suffering may come your way. And did you catch what he said there? He said this. He said, For this is a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter is saying that part and parcel of what it means to to live the Christian life is that you will suffer at times for doing good. That is the point. You live in a world that is fundamentally opposed to the core values that define your life, your new life in Christ. And when you begin to swim upstream a world that does not believe, that does not see the world the same way as you do, you will rub, you will rub in that way up against and likely suffer. And Jesus, Jesus is telling us in His Word that to do so is to be is an actually gracious thing. What does that mean, grace? Grace is a big sort of Christian-y word, isn't it? You hear it a lot when Christians speak. And we sometimes don't ever take the time to define it. What grace is, very simply, is that it's favor, that it is delight. It is a, an outpouring of good disposition precisely to people who don't deserve it. It's to people not who are like, hey, you walk up again down the street and you're like, hey, here's a hundred bucks. That's not grace. To somebody you don't know, that's not grace. Grace is this. Somebody has stolen all the money that you have and then when you get more money, you turn around and give it to the person who stole all your money. Grace is favor in the face, in the face of ill-doing toward you. And what Peter is telling us, that when we begin to live like that, God actually pours out His grace to us that we might be able to pour out grace through us to those who actually do us harm. And here's the point. 
When you begin to live like that, Peter is saying the watching world notices. They perk up and they begin to see why. Why do you live this way? Why are you enduring this sort of thing? So let me drive home a few things of application real specifically. First of all, it does force us to consider how we are treating our bosses and when they, and especially when they mistreat us. You know, at some point in your life, you may have to be able to say, I'm leaving to find a new work. But at other times, that won't be an option. And the question will remain, how will you, because of your identity in Christ, respond when reviled, when spoken ill of, actually in your work? Some of you know what this is like. Secondly, I want you to see this, that he is saying what I've already touched on, that suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. Now, I'm going to move off for just a second the topic of servants, masters, and the workforce to talk about suffering in general for just a moment. Many of you have grown up having no theology or no way of accounting for suffering in your life. And so when it comes, you're actually beginning to wonder, wonder, whoa, what just happened here? Life just got wicked hard. And you begin to wonder, does God still love me? Am I a Christian? Because I've been told that if I'm a Christian, that life's just supposed to go easy for you. And I want to say loud and clear, that is just not the case, dear friends. That actually to be a Christian is contrary to that. Listen to what Paul says. This is another apostle. The apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the idea there is, is that comes because we swim against with our, the cultural values in our own hearts and lives. It runs against the very notion that if you're following Jesus, everything will just go A-okay with you. And the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on now coming back to the topic of your work in particular, this is very specific. It does ask you to, to consider and to say, how will I live out my Christian calling when I'm actually in the workforce? Many of you are going into the workforce at the, in, in, in May. And many of you have a few more years in that. You might be working part-time jobs throughout that. This is a very easily applicable que- uh, picture for you. And that is, how does my Christian calling shape the way that I think about my work? A story I'm reminded of is of a waiter uh, that would not work Sundays. A college student that would not work Sundays because they were committed to going to church that day to being with the people of God like God has commanded them to be. And they remember this. You know, what the, you know what the payoff was? They never got the good shifts. If you've ever waited tables, you know what I'm talking about. Because they refused to work on Sundays. To be faithful to God. That boss was like, well, you'll get Tuesday and Wednesday nights, which are like the worst nights in the restaurant industry. And that's just one small little microcosm, y'all, right? Well, what about you? If you're, not, if you're not full-time employed yet, you know what your full-time job is right now? It's to be a student. And so how do you think about your Christian calling if you're in Christ as it relates to the way that you handle your studies? Do you rest? I'll say, are you studying every day of the week? Do you ever take a break? Do you know that Christ calls you to rest? Hard for me. I'm not throwing stones. I'm trying to be faithful to what the text is telling us. That's what he's driving you to begin to see. 
How will you begin to live faithfully as a Christian in the midst of your work? That's certainly there. The idea is, is that inevitably, inevitably suffering will come, specifically in your work, more generally in all of life. And the picture, can you flip that for me, please? And the picture is, is that it will come if you follow Jesus. Let's take a look secondly at the second point that I want to drive home. And you'll notice as well the model sufferer in these next verses. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. For to you, for to this you have been called. What is the this that he's referencing? It is to suffer in, in life. The idea is that if you follow Jesus, that is part of the calling to which God has for you. Because why? It tells us because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's the point here? When we're brought in to some measure of suffering in our lives, when the proverbial poo hits the fan, whether because we're being persecuted for being a Christian or because of just generally, in, in generally what it means to follow Jesus. The point is, is that we need somebody to model for us what it looks like to remain faithful in the midst of the suffering. And we see Jesus here giving us a picture of what that looks like. Did you catch it there in those verses? It says in verse 22 that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Y'all know what Peter's doing? He's reaching back into the Old Testament, into a very famous passage in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, where there's a story about this suffering servant who will come and who will actually receive and will take on suffering for God's people. And that we read in chapter 53 of Isaiah these very words, that by his stripes you are going to be healed, which is what Peter himself cites. But what's interesting here is that Peter is applying that language of the one who will come to suffer for God's people He's applying it to the man Jesus. And that's an essential link that you have to see, is that Jesus provides us the model of what it looks like to actually suffer. Look at there. When spoken out against, he did not speak the same in return. Okay, so here we go. Somebody defames your character. They run your name through the mud. How do you respond? Secondly, he suffered physically without responding in kind. This likely won't happen to you in the United States. But not less than 18 months ago, if you're a Christian, you had 21, I believe, 21 brothers who were marched down to the, to the ocean. Black bags were put over their head. They were Egyptian Christians, and their heads were chopped off for following Jesus. How will you respond to those who mistreat you? Jesus gives us the model. We do not respond in kind. Thirdly, did you catch it there? That he entrusted ultimate and final justice into God's hands. Verse 23, you saw it there, right? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And this is the only way. There's a writer named Miroslav Volf, and he actually writes about this. He talks about, and another, well, uh, yeah, the only way that you are ever able to not retaliate is if you believe that you have a God who sees all and will one day put everything to right. That's the only way that you will not respond with more violence if you have been 
violated because you trust that God sees and that he is the one that when injustice has come your way, that there is a day of reckoning where all things will be put right. And if you scoff at that, if you say, I don't like a God who judges justly, I just like a God who loves, then I just want to say, dear friend, you've lived a pampered life. You've not really gone through real suffering yet. Because if you've ever endured some serious injustice in your life, if somebody has truly wronged you, if somebody has truly hurt you or has hurt someone you loved, you crave a God of justice who will put everything to right one day. And it's exactly what Jesus believed in. It gave him great hope and great confidence that he would not lash out at those who treated him poorly. You know, it's really interesting here in this language of finding, becoming an example, this language there in, in verse 21, to you this has been called because Christ has also suffered, leaving you an example. One writer talks about that's actually too weak of a word there. It's actually a little bit more like this, a tracing or a, or a set, as it were. Think about it like this. My children, who are five and under, love for me. Uh, they love to come to me and they say, Daddy... Will you trace a rose for me? Or will you trace an elephant that I can color? And so what I end up doing is taking a white piece of paper, putting it down on the piece of other paper that's got the outline of the rose, the elephant, and I trace it for them. And the language there is like that is the paradigm for the Christian life. That our life is to be, as it were, tracing the very footsteps of Jesus, and that's what marks out our lives. And that's exactly what it talks about in verse 22, 21, when it says that we might follow in his steps. One key point of application here, here's what I want you to see, that one can simply not be following Jesus if you are not walking in his footsteps in your pattern of life. It doesn't really matter what you say. How are you living out your life? How are you fleshing out your life in the footsteps of Jesus? In particular here, He's talking about suffering. So how do you, how are you walking? So here's a great question, right? It, it forces you to begin to answer and to reflect and say, does my life reflect the very footsteps of Jesus? And so here's some easy ways to consider this as college students. What about the way that you think about your money? You might go, I don't have much money. Jesus says, you're still supposed to be generous. Are you? What about the way that you use your body? What about the way that you use the body of a significant other? Do those footsteps fall in line with how Jesus treats one another? What about the way that you think about your academics? What about the way that you think about your idols of comfort, your idols of control? What about the way that you think about living your life such that you're always trying to keep people happy with you? Any people pleasers in the room? I am. I know how easy it is. I just got to keep people happy with me. Here's the point. Peter is getting us to examine our lives. And he's getting us to see, do we follow in the very footsteps of Jesus? Which leads one writer to say this. It's a really beautiful quote. It comes from Karen Jobes. She says this, that his footsteps lead to the cross. 
through the grave and onward to glory. Is that the very pattern of your life? I think it's critical, y'all, that we begin to see this and that we begin to understand that Jesus Himself has said that a servant is not greater than his master, John 15, 20. And I do love what the writer C.S. Lewis said. Here comes another quote at you. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I'm talking specifically here when I talk about pain. I am saying that suffering is some form of that pain through which God is speaking to us with a loud megaphone. And He's saying this, that when you suffer for my sake, you are actually blessed. You're actually receiving grace in the moment for how you suffer for me. And that is meant to provide incredible uh, food for the journey, incredible endurance. And I think that if we begin to understand a little bit about what Peter is talking about at this moment, you ought to be feeling like an incredible failure. Because who lives like this? Who actually suffers like this? Not me. Give me the easy route, Jesus. I just want the easy life. What about you? Don't make things hard on me. I come from a white, well-educated family. Life has been pretty easy for me. Please do not disrupt that. That is how I live. About 99% of the time. So when I read this text, you know what I feel like? A failure. What about you? Well, here's the grace tonight, friends. I want you to take a look at this last point. And I want you to see something that Jesus is for us that is much more than an example. Because hear me out on this. If all Jesus is for you is an example, He will crush you. He will crush you like a thousand tons of stone. And you won't be able to, under, un, uh, to stand up underneath it. I'm going to show you how. And that is why in this third piece here, I want you to see the power to actually suffer. And it comes to us in the most surprising ways. Did you catch it right there in verse 23, where he says that he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Then back down in verse 24, it says this, that he himself bore our sins. I just want to focus on those five words, that he himself bore our sins. And what that means, dear friends, is that Peter is showing us here that there is more to Jesus than being a good example to follow. He is certainly that. But I want you to see that we need Jesus to be more than an example. And here's why. Because if He all that He, that he is, you actually cannot live up to His life. His life was too perfect. If all He was was a good example for you, He will crush you all the time. So I love it when people say, you know, I really like the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. That whole business about ethical teaching and how to live one's life, that's the Jesus I like. Don't give me the Jesus that talks about sin and judgment and righteousness. I don't want that one. I want the guy over here who throws out platitudes and uh, just sort of tells me how to live my life. Well, here's the problem with the Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is telling us this, you know, that, for example, have you ever hated someone in your heart? You know, you ever spoke to uh, an 
a word against somebody behind their back, or you said something snarky to them on social media, or ever had less than love in your heart from any of your friends, if you're honest, if, you, if, if you're honest, you just say yes. And you know what Jesus calls that? In the Sermon on the Mount? Murder. Murder. So, I mean, that's fine if someone's like, I, I just like the Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Great, go for it. He'll crush you 10 times out of 10. So long as he's your example. And so you know what we need? We need to see these words. He himself bore our sins. What am I taking so much time um, belaboring? Here's the point. On the cross, we get Jesus not primarily as an example of someone to follow and how to live the selfless life. But what we get is Jesus as our substitute. And right about there, you ought to just be able to exhale. That He is the one that takes the failings of our life on His shoulder. So in all the ways that Ryan fails to suffer, in all of the ways that you fail to love well, in all of the ways that you fail in the thousand different points of your life, do you know what Jesus does? He bore our sins Himself. And the text tells us that in so doing, that now we have a, this power in us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And this is what this means. Look at this. It says this, By His wounds you have been healed. Friends, do you see that profoundly good news to you tonight? That Jesus comes to us, not only as an example, though He does, but He comes to us first and foremost as a substitute. He meets us in our failures. He looks at us and He says, in all of the ways that you have failed to live rightly, I meet you and I care for you. Think about the pressure that it would be to try to live a life exactly like Jesus lived to find acceptance with God. You would never get it. I mean, for those athletes out there, I'm just, I'm just going to pull one out of the sky. If you were a football player and you're like, I, I want to be a quarterback and I need to be like Tom Brady to be named a quarterback. Do you know what that's going to leave you? A failure. A failure. If you're a musician, I'll find I can start to play like Mozart. Do you know what that's going to leave you? An absolute failure if you know music. I want to be a scientist. But the only way I can be a scientist is to be like Einstein. Guess what? You're screwed. You'll never live up. And if living up is the basis for finding acceptance with God, with our moral record, the problem is this room is fail filled with failures. And Jesus says this, He Himself bore our sins. Y'all, that's the really good news. And when that begins to get down into your bones, it gives us power, power to suffer. And that's why we can see this. Here's the point I'm trying to drive home, that in Christ we have more than an example. We have a substitute. And y'all, when you begin to see that, when you begin to see that that's what lies at the heart of Christianity, that it's not about being a good person and that God will finally accept you. No. Can anyone be good or nice or moral enough? What lies at the heart of Christianity is answering the question, do I see Jesus as my substitute? 
My substitute for what? For dying the death that I deserve to die and receiving the life that Jesus rightly lived. Do I have that for me? And the answer is yes in Christ. Those are the great promises that He is our substitute. And when you begin to see that, you're able to stand in your trials. You're able to stand in your suffering. In fact, one Puritan writer used to talk about this, that if you are not convinced of God's love for you in Jesus, every trial becomes a double trial. Why? Because you're not only suffering for the thing itself, but you're wondering if God loves you in the midst of it. But if you get the doctrine of what we say, justification, that God loves sinners and makes them right with Himself, you begin to have power to endure because you know there is one who loves you and who is with you. And y'all, I just want to see, show you this. I want you to see that Christ is the one who has borne our sins Himself, that His wounds have healed us. Many of you won't know the name Bill Connor, but he is a father from Madison, Wisconsin. And he decided to travel 2,000 miles down to Florida, uh, down to Florida over, um, I think it was actually over the spring. And he wanted to do so on a bicycle for the purpose of raising awareness for organ donation. Why? Well, he wanted to do so in honor of and in memory of his 20-year-old daughter, Abigail. She passed away this year when she died. And on his way, and on his way down to Florida, he stopped in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which just so happened to be on Father's Day. And there he met a man, I'm gonna, I may mess up his name, but it's uh, Lomanth Jack. That's his name, Lomanth Jack Jr. And he was a 24-year-old man. And there in Baton, Baton Rouge, he saw Bill coming up on the bicycle. And he walked up to him. Bill dismounted the bicycle and he began to unbutton his shirt. And then he handed Bill a stethoscope. And after placing the earpieces in the drum of Lou Munt's, Lou Munt's chest, do you know what he heard? He placed the drum of the stethoscope right up to his chest, and he began to hear his daughter Abigail's heartbeat. For this man was the recipient of his daughter's heart. And this man was now standing with new life coursing through his veins because of her death. Now I just want to share with this with you, as amazing and as powerful as that story is, do you know that in the gospel you have something even more profound? You were dead and you needed healing. You needed new life. And in Jesus, by His stripes, by His wounds, by His death, you were healed. Only in the gospel do we, the aggressors, in need of new life, we killed the one who now willingly gives up his life for us. The, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel says this, I will take out of you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. That is the promise of the gospel to you. And so now doing, dear friends, if that's what Jesus does for you, do you begin to see that you have power? 
that you have life to be able to suffer, to suffer well, if need be, if that's what the world gives you. And in so doing, the world watches on and it says, who is this Jesus that you follow? Listen to the Apostle Paul, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is what is true about you tonight, dear friends, sitting in this room, united to Jesus by His wounds. You've been healed. You've been healed. Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) this is an amazing promise for failures, for men and women who just can't seem to get it right. For those of us who in a thousand different ways have given the easy route or choosing to stand and to suffer and to endure for you, choose the easy route. Will you capture our hearts with the beauty of Jesus once again and maybe even the first time so that we might be a people who live in such a way that puts on display the real glory and beauty of Jesus to a watching world who deep down is curious and longing to know the love of their Savior. Would you help us to be that sort of people? Thank you, Jesus, for enduring stripes for us. Thank you for giving us new life new hearts and your presence in our lives. We thank you for this and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.